Blog Talk Radio. Of all the wings. 
other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. Captain, and we got to fly together for a whole month. Fine fella, Lowell Boomgardner. 
retired Eastern Captain Ronald J. Atkin. He was active in the training department. Uh, he died. Uh, Captain Jerry Hopkins uh, reports that Ron died on November the 13th of this year at age 87. And also, uh, we just learned about a former Eastern First Officer who apparently went out on a medical a long time ago, William E. Fauber. He passed away in September of uh, this year. And uh, we believe he went out on a medical in the 80s, like I said. And uh, Captain Keith Crosby, one of my contributors, all of the stuff I put out, reported that Captain Marvin B. Johnson died he was an Atlanta guy, died October the 23rd at age 99, and Captain Jerry Gernt up in Chicago area told us that Captain Lee F. Mingus died last, uh, earlier this month, or rather last month, at age 86. I had the pleasure of flying with Lee Mingus, too, on the Electra when I was a wrench on the Electra in Chicago, and he was the first officer. And that's about it, unless somebody knows some of the others that may have passed away. Well, hey Jim, uh, uh, if if uh, if our listeners do uh, hear those, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, 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 it's very easy. Just uh, remember uh, my old nickname at ATA followed me to the computer by my son. I'm Roadhog, Roadhog37 at Comcast.net, and that'll get to me every time. R O A D H O G 37. That's the year I was born. Isn't that clever? At Comcast.net. <laughs> well, that's value, valuable information. Um, we will make this this uh, time available on the radio show whenever we have an announcement. Uh, just pl- please keep in touch and let us know. Let Jim know. Sure and will. Let's, sure will. To, let's head up to New York, uh, Long Island where Captain Mike Scott is at the controls. Okay, thank you, Don. As we do each Thursday on the Reaper Radio Hour, we bring you stories as written and told to the editors of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association magazine, Reapertee. Throughout Reaper's nearly 50 years, these stories were told by the men and women of Eastern, that have made the magazine tops among the airline retirees, associations, newsletters, and magazines. Today we're going to the pages through the pages of another very important titled book called The Wings of Man. And Captain Neal, will you tell us about the book and how we can get a copy later in the show? Yes, sir. Sure will. Okay. All right, Harry, what was our producer has he, my, our producer selected for our show today? Well, Captain Mike, our producer found three stories from the pages of this great book of memories by Eastern employees. I hope we can hear many more stories selected from the book in our future broadcasts. Mr. Producer, would you play our first story? I understand it's from Maintenance. Here's a great story from The Wings of Man. The title is Tales of the Ramp by Anthony J. Tony Vasco. And the title of the short story is, We Only Go If He Goes. As a group, mechanics are not known for their great literary talents, possibly because we have been so involved with things. But us put us in training, lecture us, and our eyes begin to glaze 
but bring out the mechanism and we come to life almost quivering in anticipation as we wait to handle the part. Still, we have our stories to tell, having savored much of aviation's romance, sharing the sorrow of an old Pan-American mechanic who told of losing his best wrench set in Flushing Bay while working the flying boats and also his elation at running in a hot-powered speedboat across the flat, calm water to make waves in front of a big Boeing 314 clipper so it could take off. There was a shock of coming to work and seeing a constellation lying on its left wing in the hangar because an inspector checked the gear down, lock mechanism the wrong way. I never tired of watching a big Connie or DC-7 running up at uh, 0300, its PRTs or power recovery turbines streaming blue fire as the big round engines bellowed. The whole airplane would seem to be lunging forward against the clocks or chocks as I leaned on the big wheeled CO2 bottle and observed. My career began in the mid-1950s, and I spent many years learning from old diehards like the mechanic who stood shivering beside me in a raging snowstorm at an airport then unknown or known as Idlewild, unknown today. His face was blue with cold, his parka held closed with a greasy hunk of rope. He was the one who told me I should turn down a promotion because the added responsibility was not worth the extra pay. The loud and profane, both skilled and fumbling, could be a pain, but are good for recollections. They kept him flying and filled me with fond memories. Much of my career was spent at New York International Airport, first with a contract maintenance service, and then Eastern Airlines, now sadly extinct. In its early days, the L-1011 TriStar was snake-bit and full of glitches. The first few were delivered with Rolls-Royce RB211-22C engines and, being derated, were relatively trouble-free. When the definitive dash 22B model came on the scene, we found out what the trouble was. The higher thrust seemed to push its compressors too hard. When it stalled, the results were catastrophic, and on several occasions, I saw the tailpipe loaded with assorted blades, stators, and combustion liner products. The damage was easily visible from the ground and made the technical call simple engine change. We had some bad winters early in the L-1011's life, during which time freezing rain conditions seemed to breed number two engine, engine, uh, which is the center engine, stalls. On one of these bad weather days, our morning flight to San Juan was filled to capacity. The freezing rain subsided and a carefully de-iced airplane pushed back for departure. I watched as it growled along the runway, saw the nose lift, and seemed to remain that way forever, then rotate a little more. That was enough for engine number two, and it banged loudly, and blew sparks, and hard parts. 
committed for takeoff, the TriStar lifted easily and disappeared into the clouds, only to return a few minutes later, greeted by a comet's tail of crashed vehicles. A cursory glance revealed a curling mass of scrap blades. No need for a closer look. I made my way up to the cockpit with the bad news. It blew its ever-living guts out, Captain. But not to worry, folks. Another mighty TriStar was parked next door, and following the transfer of bags, catering, and payload, we de-iced her, and off she went, rotated, roller-skated, and rotated that little bit more, and blew the guts out of number two. Once again, a TriStar showed it could fly on two engines. Again, the senior representative of technical services was the first aboard. This time, my reception was somewhat hotter than the last, and there seemed to be some Spanish canards being hurled at me by the emotionally stirred passengers. Being verbal, they did not hurt me. The captain was philosophical, getting paid the same for logging two-engine time. A harried gate agent announced that yet another L-1011 was on its way from the hangar and would momentarily be parked next to this one. They knew the drill. I discussed the challenge with the captain, who decided to make the next takeoff with number two at slightly reduced power to avoid number two with no power, as had already happened twice. Leaving the cockpit, I made my way through the hostile crowd and doubtful looks. Fuel catered and loaded, the third aircraft rotated, skated, and lifted off. Perfection. No belches of flame and parts, but I did, I did not feel good. The landing gear, usually snatched up immediately after liftoff, was still protruding as the L-1011 disappeared into the clouds. The inevitable call came. On the company radio was a captain seeking suggestions on how to retract the wheels. I felt sure the gear bypass valves had not been reset. A design glitch in the control linkage, later corrected, that required a mechanic to climb into the wheel well with a hefty screwdriver to rectify. The people at the hangar had not performed this simple step, and the only answer was to return, reset the linkage, and again depart. I had two mechanics at the ready when the contrary beast taxied in. As soon as the aircraft was stopped, they were in the wheel wells to set the linkage. The passenger, passenger door opened, and I stepped into less than a cordial reception, surrounded by some very emotional and glaring passengers. It was beginning to get ugly. My explanation as to what happened was not satisfactory, even assurance that once fuel, they could leave immediately. As the shouts increased, my limited understanding of Spanish kept me in the dark until the agent explained the ultimatum. They won't go unless you go, too, he said. Another group of them in the back are raising hell. It's a near riot, in fact. Having joined our discussion, the captain asked, Are you game? As we taxied out, the senior flight attendant asked me to come back into the cabin so everyone could observe that the chief mechanic was indeed, was indeed on board.
I showed myself to the crowded cabins, feeling like a Christian at the Coliseum. Presently, we made our takeoff with the number two engine at reduced power. It performed perfectly, and the gear came up as well. The flight down was was uneventful. I returned on the same airplane to a late supper at home. Now, this was first published in the July-August 1994 issue of Airways Magazine between 1994 and 2001. Tony Vasco contributed 60 stories for his hugely popular Tales of the Ramp feature in Airways Magazine. Yeah, a note about Tony Vasco. Uh, I used to work with him personally. He's a big, tall guy, and he worked in tech service. He was a, a walking book of knowledge. This guy had a photographic memory. He was unbelievable. And I, I know that the whole story about that 1011 and that, that tech rep that we had for the Rolls-Royce was a British guy named Teddy Borstervelt. <laughs> I remember the episode very well. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good writer, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tony good. was uh, unbelievable. He just had a photographic memory, and he just could. Uh, he was. He, he was. Uh, it was. He was a one of a kind. Yeah. Uh, good story. Very good story. Yeah. 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 Well, we've heard many stories about the L ten eleven and the uh, mechanical problems during the early days of the aircraft with Eastern. However, all the pilots I've ever talked to really enjoyed flying the Whisper Whale, as it was called uh, back in those days. Uh, President Floyd Hall brought the aircraft to Eastern, and the company was the first to fly the wad by the aircraft. Yeah, Don, I flew the aircraft for three years, racking up several hundred hours as the first officer uh, when uh, they kind of curtailed flying. Uh, I was captain on the 727. And we lost some flying in Atlanta, so I went back on the right seat of the L-1011. And it was about the time a lot of the um, Atlanta captains were checking out on it, pilots. And I went down to school with uh, the first class. And uh, I was uh, I was crewed with uh, Don Purcell, one of the nicest gentlemen with Eastern Airlines, as far as I'm concerned, a great, great guy. And uh, enjoyed the school, although it was very difficult for me and Don. Our second officer, he, he, he had a photographic memory, and he would be in the bar all night long. And the next morning, he would answer all the questions that the instructor would ask 100% correct. And we couldn't figure out how he was doing it. But at any rate, it was a great airplane. It really was. It was not only beautiful, but comfortable and Highly advanced for its days. It was a pleasure to fly. It's one of those first aircraft to have fully automatic landing system, allow, allowing it to land in zero zero conditions. I made several of these, especially landing in Los Angeles when the sea fog, of course, would roll in. Often, uh, by the time we got there, close to midnight, it would roll in off the Pacific Ocean. And I really only had two flights that had any mechanical. Uh, problems with it in the three years I flew the aircraft. Jim, did you fly the airplane? Yeah, I flew the first officer on it uh, and uh, for about a year, a year and a half or something like that, then yeah. I moved up to 727 captain. The only problem yeah. I ever had, I don't four, but 
Chicago from uh, San Juan to Chicago and Sonny Seaman was the captain and it was my leg and you know I I said, well, this is a heavy airplane taking off out of uh, San Juan, Captain. He said, well, Jim, someday you're going to be a captain, so you need to just fly when it's not just everything you want. The plane was loaded to the gills. And I said, okay. And I shut the power up, and we passed in the runaway about 500 feet in there, going to felt like I was holding on to a runaway horse. That plane was go. I mean, to tell you, it had the power. Uh, we didn't have to pull back number two. This was later on, I guess. And, uh, yeah. And we zipped up there, and and uh, and I think I may have told this story if I have. Uh, don't listen. But we were in a pattern, and uh, I pulled the power back. We descended down to six and leveled off, and I pushed them up. And I felt it, y'all. And I looked down at the little by the captain's fight knee to the Eper gate, and I said, Sonny. I think number three engine just quit. And he said, well, Jim, I think you're right. <laughs> so we started pitting around with the fuel control and everything. And I'm working the radio. We was in, the, you know, that uh, deal they have in Chicago where you got 500 airplanes flying each other. And we made that big turn back. And next thing you know, number number two, three engines running again. So we came in and landed. And the mechanics eyeballed it and said, no, we don't see anything wrong. It just decided to take a break, I guess. And so then we flew to Chicago to Atlanta. That's about the sum total of my ten eleven flying. I mean everything else is just routine. Yeah. Well, you you know what us maintenance guys uh, used to call uh, you know the uh, the nickname that we gave it was the Golden Goose because mm-hmm. it used to lay golden eggs of overtime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a maintenance eater that airplane. Mm-hmm. We could go okay, on with Harry. stories about the 1011 for a long time, but go ahead, Harry. Yeah. Hey, uh, Neil and Jim and and Mike, right quick, did making those zero zero landings was that any different mentally on you guys? No, I can't uh, say that it was. I didn't I, think it was. I I tell you, I I it really didn't make any in the 1011, but I did on the Z model 727. And uh, I did two in one day, as a matter of fact. And uh, it just worked like a charm if old dumbass me hadn't picked autopilot off of 10 feet and pulled the fire back and crashed. Uh, everybody would have said that this was at Denver down to 1100 RVR or something like that. And uh, But uh, it, uh, we had to get radar vector to the gate. That's how bad it was. But it flew beautiful. Mm. 727 yeah. was a wonderful the airplane, seven. too. Especially the Z models. 757 was a wonderful uh, auto land airplane. I mean, it, it just mm-hmm. did a wonderful job, Harry. Well, moving on. Harry, I, n- I never flew it. anything with an auto land on it. <laughs> 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 we we used to make some real low cat twos and some uh, uh, constantly and in, in zero zero takeoffs in a seven two. But I hand flew all the approaches. I, n- I never a couple. I never did once a coupled approach in a seven twenty seven except in the simulator. It's the only time <laughs> yeah. I ever did them. Well, interesting, interesting. Now, moving on, here's one we found that was written by a flight attendant and her experience as a new trainee. This story is from Donna DeMarco, who flew from 1970 to 1991. After her career at Eastern, she graduated uh, cum laude from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia in 1994 
with a degree in diagnostic imagery. She began a second career in radiology and mammography, working in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and later Munich, Germany, before taking graduate studies at Rutgers in early childhood development. She spends a lot of time with her grandson, Zachary. Title of her story is Adventures in the Air. In the days before terrorism, security checks, taking your shoes off, and firing up your laptop for the TSA, the airport was a place of excitement and entertainment. When I was five years old, my Aunt Margie and Uncle Bob took me out to Philadelphia Airport one Sunday afternoon to have a lunch and watch the airplanes take off. The year was 1958, and we were hoping to get a, a look at a jet. I had seen lots of prop airplanes before. A few times, low-flying prop airplanes made the wooden frame windows shake in our old Mayfair twin home. But jets? This was a bigger deal. I remember watching a jet taxi out and lumber down the runway as I was thinking that there was no way this giant with no propellers was going to be able to lift off. I remember seeing it lift scoured, leaving trails of black smoke vapor. I was hooked. That day, I told my aunt and uncle that when I grew up, I was going to work for the airlines. Throughout grade school and high school, as my peers decided whether to be a nurse, secretary, or school teacher, which were professions the guidance counselors were hard selling for girls, I remained true to my calling. I did, in fact, take a service representative position with the telephone company to bide my time until I was 19 and a half years old, enough to apply to an airline. My very first flight was a one to Miami to begin training for Eastern Airlines. It was during the height of hurricane season, and I do not think we missed a single storm cloud the whole way there. My knees were still shaking when I deplaned and called home to say I had arrived safely. Surely this turbulent flight was an aberration. Smooth blue skies were ahead for me. Two weeks into training school, after being plucked, buffed, coiffed, and having committed to memory 300 city codes, we were told we would all be going on a familiarization flight. We would take a return service, and we would take a return service for a day and assist the cabin crew. I picked a Philadelphia turnaround for my FAM flight. I reported at 0900 to Miami Operations and found my crew. I was wearing a pale pink long sleeve woolen dress, high heel pumps, and a big gold pen that read trainee. Once the DCH stretch was at cruising altitude, the senior flight attendant let me borrow a serving smock. She poured a tray of 12 soft drinks and placed them on a gray tray with a doily. She then told me to hold the tray with both hands and offer the drinks to the passengers in the coach cabin. I was just cutting through the first class cabin on my way to coach when we encountered some turbulence. Eleven of the twelve drinks poured into the lap of a man seated in the last row of first class, soaking him and extinguishing his cigarette in the process. The last drink perched on the edge of the tray 
and that one poured onto his head as I bent to begin cleaning up the mess. I was mortified, waiting for him to yell or something, but he erupted with a big bellowing laugh that served to make the rest of first class turn around to see what I had done. He was such a good sport, and he made me feel at ease. Surely things had to go better after this. Not so. The turbulence continued, and four separate times the captain asked the flight crew to suspend service and sit down. The senior flight attendant trusted me to do the roles in first class, stating that even if I dropped them, no one would get hurt. Later in the service, when the coach flight attendants began running the used food trays back to the galley, my job was to sit on a blanket on the galley floor and stuff trays into the carriers. The turbulence continued, and I was holding onto the galley curtains with one hand as I stuffed the dirty trays with the other. I crammed more than 50 trays into a carrier designed to hold 36 before the crew told me, there were other empty tray carriers that could be used. The lasagna strain or stains made a border on the part of my pink dress that hung below the serving smock. And I still had to work the flight back to Miami with the same crew. The dinner flight to Miami was less chaotic. The weather had improved, and we had a headwind which gave us more time to complete a leisurely top-notch meal service. I may have spilled a few things on that flight as well, but at least it wasn't 12 sodas on the same guy. At the completion of the flight, the senior flight attendant gave me a sealed envelope to give to my training instructor back at training school. I was afraid that she documented my inability to walk and serve beverages at the same time. My airline career was to be over before it had even begun. On the following Monday, in front of my entire training class, the instructor read a note from a senior flight attendant that commented on a trainee, so poised and confident that she could turn an embarrassing moment into a funny anecdote, and who had such super work ethics as to stick with a task, however messy, until the job was done. She further said it was a pleasure to fly with me. After that rocky start, I continued to fly for almost 20 years until my beloved Eastern Airlines closed its doors in 1991. The friendships I made at Eastern have survived, and those same folks are my friends today. What a wonderful, joyful career filled with adventure and camaraderie. Everything else before and since has just been a job. Really good. Sounds like, yeah. Eric, she had a difficult start, but sounds like she had everything that could be thrown at you as a new hire that that happened on her first flight. I especially like the way the story ended. She certainly showed the right stuff it takes to be a cabin crew member. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Eastern had some. Great flight attendants, great flight attendants. Absolutely. Uh, I, I used to think they were all in yeah. Atlanta, but I think they were all through the system. And um, oh, there are so many stories I could tell, and Jim, you could yeah. too, and Harry, uh, you you yeah. missed out. I could tell you a few also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. damn good looking too. Yeah, there you go. 
Yep. Well, well, thank you. My sister flew for 15 years with Eastern. Did she? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. I was out. I was out of work for two weeks on account of two Eastern flight attendants. Oh, oh boy! Uh oh! That's what happens Uh-oh. when you're walking through the hangar with your toolbox in your uh, in your hand, going to work on an airplane, and, and there's two flight attendants wiggling out to an air 727 on the ramp, one with hot pants and the other one with a miniskirt on, <laughs> and you're not watching what you're doing, and you run your head into the VHF antenna on a DC-8 and drop your toolbox on your foot. So. <laughs> I was I was out for two weeks on that one. Oh, <laughs> you were watching what you wanted to watch. That's right. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Jim. All right. Well, our next story was written by a flight attendant whom I know well. I flew with her many times, and I've been in contact with her over the years after yeah. Eastern. Yeah. Alex Conway. Lexa has contributed several stories to Repartee magazine, and Neil included them in his book, The Wings of Man or Manly. I never quite know how to pronounce that, Neil. Anyhow, Neil, what do you have from Alexa today's show? All right, let's see what she's going to tell us. I think it's about two famous passengers. In the beautiful hardback book, The Wings of Man, This story is about two famous passengers and the movie star. It's by Alexa Conway. The title, Bob Hope, the Reverend Billy Graham, and an unknown movie star. Bob Hope was very loyal to Eastern when he flew with us. He was early early to board. First aisle seat, where he immediately fell asleep while we boarded. He had a grueling schedule during 1976 for the bicentennial celebrations. We brought him to Washington, D.C. and flew him back to Los Angeles time and again. Once after my announcements and securing the cabin for takeoff and picking up first-class glassware, he was still sleeping, upright, but without his seatbelt fastened, which was unusual. I monitored him constantly. Finally, hating to disturb his rest, I approached him quietly and slowly. He didn't budge or blink. He was breathing heavily, so I knew he was fine, but he had to have his seatbelt fastened. I watched his face closely as I began to slowly pull the seatbelt apart, wide, and fasten it. Now I began to pull it slowly tighter. I was so focused, I didn't realize the entire cabin was watching realizing what I had to do, what I needed to do. As I got the buckle about two inches from his waist, he grabbed both of my hands, saying, My wife will never believe this, laughing. Instantly, the entire first-class cabin began to laugh and exclaim to each other, I had to go clean myself. The Reverend Billy Graham flew with us regularly. He was always a treat to have on board on a flight that was consistently bumpy. He and his wife were in my last row. The air became so turbulent that my crew was told to clear service items and buckle into their jump seats. As I went one last time through coach and into first class, the weather became serious. I immediately sat on an armrest of the seat in front of Reverend Graham. My cabin was full. 
A passenger across from the Reverend and Mrs. Graham was shaken by the weather. I was holding onto the seat, just chatting until I felt I could continue getting to my jump seat. We hit a clear pocket and popped, uh, dropped a little bit, drinks spilling everywhere. The man looked at Reverend Graham, grimacing, frightened, and said, Well, at least I know we're safe with you on board. Reverend Graham smiled and replied, No, no, my friend. I'm most anxious to meet my maker at any moment. I welcomed the thought. I thought the passenger was going to throw up. The long flight was from San Juan to Atlanta. I was training a new hire in first class. She was all grins. So excited to be flying with Eastern. We had a four-card service. That meant cocktails and nuts, hot hors d'oeuvres, then a choice of dinner, choice of dessert, cordials, coffee, and cheese. We would prepare everything and serve the food from a cart covered in linens, while two other flight attendants did the same thing on the opposite side of the cabin. This big shot was in the middle section of six rows across, two by two in my first-class cabin. He thought the sun rose and set because he wanted it to do that. We had completed most of the service, two of us each working on one cart so the new hire would learn the whole procedure. The dessert was ice cream sundaes. We served hot fudge, strawberry, or caramel, topping with nuts and whipped cream. We were almost finished. The newbie picked up the whipped cream can and shook it. When she did, a little bit of the cream flew out, landing on his head. She was mortified. She grabbed her service towel and began to dab his head. Until then, he had no idea anything had happened. When we realized she was wiping his head, he moved, grabbing at his head. When he moved, his toupee came off in her towel. She screamed, seeing this black, hairy thing in her hand, and threw it. The hair flew over the next seat, falling exactly on the tray of some unsuspecting woman in the last row. I can only imagine how frightening that would be. It looked like a huge, black, hairy bug of some sort. When the woman screamed and tried to jump up, she knocked everything off her tray into the aisle and onto herself. My newbie was begging the guy to forgive her and trying to explain. I had to leave her to tend to the woman on the other side of my cabin. I retrieved the napkin and contents from her area. When the man stormed into the lavatory with a napkin, the poor woman calmed herself. We all saw how funny this whole thing had been. Everyone began to laugh. We could not help ourselves. However, I knew when he came out, he could not be laughing. I went to busy myself, and I could not look anyone in the eye for fear of bursting and out laughing again. When he finally came out, everyone looked away. He was steaming. He was flying with someone, and we presume was his agent. I felt sorry for him. You just never know what might happen on a flight. It might have been the only time he would have preferred being unknown. Alexa Conway knew she would be a flight attendant by the sixth grade and never deviated from that path. She flew for almost 20 years, and later she went into sales, made good money, then burned out in the mid-90s. She started her own company, 
called Spiderweb. One of her first websites was Eastern Alley, where she began compiling names and email addresses of her former employee family. She is now fully retired, but still having fun. One one thing about Alexa before Mike, uh, she, uh, yeah. when I said Alexa, of course, my Alexa over here on my desk had to start talking, <laughs> but at any rate, she helped me uh, with the Wings of Many, the uh, book that uh, we assembled, and Alexa had a lot to do with it. There she goes again. She's talking again. <laughs> All right. Enough about Alexa. All right. <laughs> But go ahead with your toupee story, Mike. Oh, yeah. Well, when I was a mechanic for Easton, there there was two or three or maybe even four guys. that uh, and They were all fairly young. I mean, we were all, uh, most of us were at, at that time. I was fairly new at Eastern. And, uh, and and there was a bunch of guys that were wearing the toupees. And I remember I when we I worked the hangar, and, and uh, every day we, uh, at the terminal, they would send two guys from the hangar up to the terminal to to help the guys uh, with the workload, one guy would be a, a maintenance guy, as they call the barrel guy, and another guy would be it would help the, in the push crew. So the one day I was on the push crew when I got sent up there, and I had this this friend of mine who wore a toupee, and I'm not going to mention any names because you might know who he is. But anyway, uh, we were doing the pushes, and we did the morning pushes, and we got everybody out, and then it's time to time to go to coffee. So they it, it, uh, up there at the terminal at Kennedy, you guys might know. Remember, there was a cafeteria down on the, on the lower level, yeah. Uh, yeah. where the employees could go down there. Well, anyway, he, we're gonna go down there and get some coffee. So he gets out of. He was on the in the tractor, and he was wearing a toupee and he had the headset on. So when he took the headset off, and took it off kind of quick, he was. I guess he didn't have the right kind of glue on there that one day. And he, when he took it off, his toupee was turned on about a 30-degree angle <laughs> with with a part on it, you know. So I didn't say anything when he got out. And I said, we just continue to walk down to the to, to the what you, to the to the lunch place. I mean, the uh, the cafeteria. And I didn't say a word to him. <laughs> Everybody was looking at him like crazy and, oh, and laughing and everything else. But that's uh, I just thought I'd pull a. Uh, a shrewdy on him that time when uh, without saying anything because he was so so sensitive about that thing you know I never lived that one yeah down. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well you know I got a, a thought of a similar one Neil if I got a moment here yeah uh, I can't remember the guy's name but I can sure see him in my mind's eye and he had a toupee that had to be the worst toupee I've ever seen. <laughs> And I don't know if it had glue or staples in it or what, but he was, most of us, we had a little earpiece we'd put in our ear, you know, and that would be if you captain, you put it in your left ear, co-pilot, put it in the right ear. But he didn't, he didn't have that. And, and I think he, I'm thinking he may have come from Carabara. I don't know. But, uh-huh. uh, and he bore the regular headset, the C-clamp that goes over. We were going someplace at night, late in the night, and we got into turbulence and everything, and uh, he was flying the airplane, and he was trying to hand fly it for some reason. And he was fighting that thing, and next thing I know, he's bouncing around. I looked over there, and his headset, the front, the right one was over on his cheek, 
And, he, <laughs> and his left one was behind his ear, and his hair was down over his eyes almost. It's the damnest sight you've ever seen. And we're bumping along, you know. And he's trying to fly with one hand and get this whole mess straightened out on his other side, you know. And oh, it was just getting worse and worse and worse, you know. And he's trying to fly the airplane and fly it, and it's turbulent. And finally, I said, Captain, you want me to take it for a while? He said, Hell yeah, you know. So I took it, and it took him 15 minutes to get his. Toupee back on with his head to where it's supposed to be, and by then he just just collapsed. I mean, it was just it was funny. He even started laughing. I tell you, I felt bad about it, so he started laughing. Well, <laughs> I, got, I couldn't stop. <laughs> I got one real quick toupee story, and I first came with Eastern in '63, the beginning of '63, and um, one of the first guys I met was a guy that had a toupee. And he dyed his eyebrows as black as his toupee, and his name was Dave Ferry. And, of course, you guys remember Dave Ferry. He was involved in the Kennedy assassination, not involved in it, but uh, he was uh, investigated. Uh, They've investigated him uh, because, I think, of his association with uh, the guy Ruby. And um, but he's in the books that uh, did the stories about the Kennedy assassination. But what a ugly guy! I mean, this guy was unbelievable <laughs> ugly with that black toupee and and that black uh, eyebrows dyed black and um, ugly guy. And I saw this guy and I said. I didn't. I never flew with him, but I think I I, I saw him, and I, I think it was on an airplane or maybe at the gate or something like that. Somebody pointed out. You're right. Those yeah. black eyebrows. You could see him 200 <laughs> feet away. Yeah. Coming at I don't have a two. I don't have a a two page story, but when you were okay. reading that last story from Alexa, describing the cabin service. Uh, people, younger people today would not believe what kind of service you used to get on an airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm You're right, Harry. For yeah. sure. Well, I can yeah. flip it away the other way. I can't believe the kind of service we're getting on the airplane now when I go to Yeah, place. right. <laughs> it's just the opposite of what it used to be. I mean, uh, yeah. oh, boy. Well, we had those famous dinner flights, and uh, I flew several of them. Jim, you did too, I'm sure. And, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it was fun to uh, have the crew meals along the same, you know, the same uh, menu that we ate from, mm-hmm. and it was wonderful food mm-hmm. that we ate. Hot food Sundays afterwards. Yeah. We had those on the L.A. and Mexico City flights. That's where I had them. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah, Harry. Yes, did, did you do any traveling, Harry? Did you do any pass riding? Uh, yeah, mostly uh, relatives. I went to Mexico City one time. I think on a DC eight. Yeah. But uh, yeah, quite quite a bit. Yeah. Well, the service was I, great. I remember it the really Electra. Was. The Electra had that lounge in the back. I thought that was yeah. the coolest thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was a lot of fun. That was that was great. Uh, Don, yeah. turn it back over to you. Uh, well, listen, we got, uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, we had uh, we, you eliminated a small part here of mine. This is, I think, oh, the last yeah. part oh, of the story of the toupee. I saw it in the movie, but if it hadn't, it should have been. So, are men still wearing toupees? Well, that's that's a good question. 
seems nowadays the most popular is not to have any hair. And uh, I guess right. that's, uh, you, I can probably relate to that one. Yeah. Men have had, uh, you know, other, they do all kinds of things with their hair. They grow, they grow it on your face. And, of course, uh, we all know the scenario where, they, where it comes out your ears and your nose. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Mike, it was nice getting that picture that you sent out on that email. Uh, talking about the 727, you sent a picture of you doing your Jepson revision. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some flight attendant <laughs> sent me that recently, and I didn't, uh, you know, it came out of the blue. She she was formulating a lot of her old pictures, yeah. and it was when she surprised me. She asked me something, and I looked up from doing the Jepsons, and, of course, I was I was about 20 or 25 years ago. I looked <laughs> substantially different now. <laughs> okay, Don? Your time now. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Producer, uh, how about telling us more about the uh, book, The Wings of Man? thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> the book that you heard stories today from uh, are bound in a beautiful uh, hardback with a dust cover. Of course, we know what a dust cover is. I don't know why the covers of hardback books are called dust covers. Yeah, could be called a toupee for a book, yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, it's a beautiful book, and uh, Vito Borelli and Roland Moore, the attorney at Eastern, uh, were uh, signed uh, by EARA to put the book together, pretty much like Repa asked me to put the uh, book uh, The Best of Repartee together, and I think I put together about 2,000 of those, and uh, it had a dust cover as well. And uh, every one of the repartee, uh, the best of repartee books were sold out. I think over 2,000 of those were sold. And um, But this book is a beautiful book. I have mine autographed by Vito and uh, at the reunion we had down in Fort Lauderdale a few years back. I think it was 2014. But the book is a beautiful book, and I really didn't get into it. I've had it on my desk for a long time. And then Michael Zoll, the president of EARA, when it went out of business, uh, they <clears throat> they decided to uh, uh, to uh, terminate EARA, uh, had several books left over, and he wanted to pass them on to us so that we could use them for donations. Uh, Harry just bought one, and I got it in the mail to you, Harry. But you're going to enjoy that book. You really are, because there's so many great stories in there, like these three. And uh, they're about from all different uh, departments of Eastern. And great pictures. Uh, the cover stock, is uh, the, the page stock is, is slick, uh, heavy, heavy uh, stock. And uh, it's a it's a heavy book. Uh, ten of those books, I could hardly pick up the box as they were delivered to me. I mentioned this Monday night, but um, uh, they are available, and we're sending them out for a twenty dollar donation plus five dollars for shipping and handling, which means uh, they go media mail because I just sent one to Harry, and it costs four dollars and eighty three cents, and I think it was, and uh, and then the cost of the uh, box that I put it in to you, Harry, uh, was a, a, a 
one that was empty that I got from Amazon. So at any rate, you'll enjoy it. And, and if you want to order these, you can do that before Christmas, and I'll get it out to whomever you want it sent to or to yourself or present to yourself. But this should be on your coffee table. It is a coffee table book you'll be proud of. And, it, of course, the cover of it is the, the Eastern logo with all the people assembled around the hockey stick, as we called it, uh, with all the people on the ramp there. And, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful book. And on the back cover, it has all of the logos of Eastern. It has the falcon, the duck hawk, and uh, some uh, pictures of uh, the duck hawk streamlined on like we use on the DC-8s. And um, you, you really like the book. If you want one, I've got 19 left now. 19 left. Nobody's going to get my copy and uh, because it's a signed well edition it. by Vito. It's, it, do you um, have a copy, Mike? I do, but I, I, I may order a few more because every once in a while I do some giveaways if I have yeah. them here, you know. Wow, what a present it would be because uh, great stories. I mean, these are super stories from just – as a matter book, of fact, Jim Holder, you've got a story in there that you contributed to it. And, um, I do? Yeah, you do. <laughs> and um, Yes, you do. I want to look it up right now real quick for you. And tell you the title of it. I can't even remember what the title was, but at any rate, the editor uh, or the publisher of the book called me when I was the editor of the uh, repartee and asked me to send him some stories. And um, so I told him who to contact, and I think I told him to contact you. And of course, you've got Hello. a story in here, and I'm trying to look at it right now, real quickly. To see what it was about, but you did one on <laughs> Captain David C. Valter, Dave Valter. Oh, and, me, I um, did. Yeah, that you sent to the publisher of the book, so it's in there. Dave Valter uh-huh. was a great guy, super nice oh, guy. Oh, super guy. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, Alexa's got a couple of stories in there, and uh, uh, Winnie Gilbert. Uh, uh, we've got stories of it, it, it starts with the history of Eastern and it's unlike the history that you've seen. It's with pictures. And uh, I think the first 10 or so pages, maybe 15 pages. It's a book of about 200. Let's see how many pages is in it. It's over 200 pages, almost 300 pages in this book. So it's a great book. And if you want a copy uh, on our website, EALradioshow.com. Uh, just go or either on your computer, uh, host, H O S T, at EALradioshow.com, and just ask for one. You can pay for it on PayPal, and that's what you used, I believe, for uh, our uh, Visa or MasterCard, whatever card you have. You can do it right on the EAL Radio Show website, and we'll get it right out to you. Don, that's all. My book is signed by Vito Borelli. Okay, at the same reunion. <laughs> that's right. Yes, it is. <laughs> I got a, I got a special one. It's not signed by anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice. Uh, listen, you're gonna have. Huh? I, I wanted to say something before we hang up here. 
Yeah. The Boeing 737 Max, he got here soon to be flying again. Today, yeah. this morning, Karen and I watched that two-hour special on the 737 Max. Wow. And it was it was something. Uh, they, they left out of some stuff I thought that would have in there about the second crash. But if you get, I re, we recorded it. it. I think it came on last week, and Carrie saw it, and it says 737 fall from the sky or something like that. The title is really not a good one, but the uh, but the two hours were really good, really good. And it, who, it didn't really uh, who, go into it. ABC, it ABC, CBS, it was terrible. Uh, it's one of those. ABC. I saw it. Uh, Carrie, just a second. Carrie. Well, she's at the other end of the house. She recorded it, was... it last week. It was on the major network. Okay. okay. Really? Hey, come, Terry, come here, please, quick. What channel was that 737 Max 8 on? See, it was a major network. Okay, we, yeah. Yeah. They two, might two, have. 5, or 11, yeah. If they let go run it again, but if they do, you gotta watch it. you got to watch it. Well, maybe you they've got, got it, it so you can stream it and, and pick it up. Yeah, yeah. Podcast. Right. It's yeah. called 737 Max's Fall from the Sky or something like that. Okay, very good. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, great show, guys. <coughs> Super. Neil? Yeah. What have you got for Monday night? Monday night we're going to talk about, uh, that's uh, Pearl Harbor Day, of course, December the 7th. And uh, we'll talk about that and also about the ladies that served our military services in uniform uh, from the very beginning. I mean, way back, World War One, World War Two, Korean War, and so forth. So we're going to talk about the ladies and their contribution to the war effort uh, that uh, of America. So it'll, it'll be a good show. Well, that sounds real good. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I guess we better sign off. So... Um... We'll see you folks again next week, December 10th, when we bring you more stories on the Reaper Radio Hour. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, it's www.ealradioshow.com. And that's where you'll find many more Great Eastern stories and memories. So it's time to say so long. So on behalf of all of our hosts and our producer, Captain Neil Holland, This is Don Gagnon saying so long, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Love you, Eastern. Good. Thanks, guys. Love you, Eastern. Great show. show. They're taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading don't leave me I cry don't take that airplane ride but you locked me out of your mind and left me standing here behind silver wings shining in Somewhere in flight 
They're taking you away And leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Thanks so much. Hey, good show, Neil. See Thank you later. You. All See right, you Monday, six minutes to happy hour. <laughs> okay. uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, a Manhattan for me. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.